Our text this morning is Romans chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. And let's read into this for context as we do. And, and as we read, let's recognize this is the word of the Lord. Father, give us ears to hear your word. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Amen. Father, again, we come before you this morning asking that you would be gracious to meet with us, to teach us your word, that we might be changed from within, transformed in heart to be worshipers of God more and more. Lord, help us. You know that we are sinners, and yet you have cleansed us by your word, and you are cleansing us now progressively, more and more by the power of your blessed Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Lord, have your due effect in us. May your word, the word of life, bring us all life. Help us, Lord. We thank you for this time, and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Romans 6 has been a pause in um, what has been a long explanation and a, a wonderful explanation of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Um, Paul in chapter 6, as we know, is taking a moment to deal with some potential questions that he anticipates from his primarily Jewish opponents who would ask this question, Paul, if you are setting aside um, the law of God as it seems you are in your teaching, you're exalting grace primarily, then won't people just sin with impunity? Won't they just say, let us sin so that grace can abound? Um, So that the Lord can put his goodness in his grace on display by covering up all our sin. And Paul is saying, that is a wretched idea. May it never be. God forbid. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And we spent some time looking at that phrase, died to sin, to understand what it means. Because the the big question is, how can we have died to sin, past tense, if we still deal with sin in our lives? Right? As Christians, we still sin. We fall into sin. We We know this about ourselves, and the Lord is graciously revealing our sin more and more so that we do confess our sin and repent and turn from it. Well, the answer is he's not talking about a complete eradication of sin yet. 
That is coming. That's called ultimate glorification. What he's talking about here and what he's at pains to stress in this text is the sanctified life. That the one who is justified, who has been declared right with God, right in his sight, based only on faith in Christ alone. That person will not be left alone. The Spirit of God has put that person into union with Christ. And that person is now being changed from within by the Spirit of God from one degree of glory to the next by the Spirit of God. Into what image? Into the image of Christ, the one who forms this new man, which is really the church. This is us, brothers and sisters. A spiritual body of Christ where he is the head. No longer is Adam our head, as Paul showed us from verses 12 through 21 in chapter 5. But Christ is now our spiritual head. And all the blessings of Christ now come to us through no work of our own, through grace alone. And so Paul says, we have died to sin in this sense. We are no longer under its mastery. We're no longer dominated, controlled by sin such that we have to obey it. That's the point. Sin used to reign as a tyrant. He personifies sin as a tyrant who's on the throne of our hearts. And we are unable to get out from under his control until Christ frees us. He has brought us out of spiritual bondage, a spiritual exodus out of Egypt and under the control of Pharaoh as that old tyrant, if you will. He's freed us from that. And now he's brought us into a spiritual promised land where he's given us a new heart and yet he's not completely eradicated the enemies there. He's left enemies in the land so that he, by his spirit, would lead us and would give us those victories progressively, little by little, until one day they all will be eradicated. So his concern is sanctification. And he's saying, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, and we saw that that's not a uh, water baptism. (laughs) This is talking about spiritual baptism. As many as have been immersed spiritually into Christ, made one with him, brought into union with him, they have died with Christ. They've been baptized into his death They've been buried with him. That is to say, the old man is gone. We now have a new identity, which is Christ in us. And he doesn't leave us dead. We've been raised with Christ. So we've been buried with him, or died with him, buried with him, raised with him. And he calls this raising a walking of, in newness of life in verse 4. We should walk in newness of life now. So that's the focus. And we saw that last week for in verse 5, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. There is a guarantee there, not just a promise of newness of life, not just a, a hope of newness of life, a possibility of newness of life, but a guarantee that all who have died with Christ are certainly raised with him to newness of life. Spiritually, we are alive with him now. In fact, If you are not alive with Christ and if you have not um, been freed from the power and the dominion of sin in your life, it shows that you've not been freed from sin. You have not actually been baptized into him. You're not in union with Christ. That's his whole argument. Those who are in union, who have been united to him, certainly will be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with 
The old tyrant sin is gone as a controlling factor in our lives. The body of sin, the, the physical body that we still have, this unredeemed humanity, where sin used to exercise its absolute dominion over us, has been weakened. He uses the phrase that it might be done away with. It's not the idea of complete eradication. It's the idea of deprived of its power. In other words, when you sin now in Christ, it's a voluntary choice. You are sinning as a child of God against love, the love of a father. You're no longer sinning as a criminal against law. That is gone. That was in Adam. In Christ, when we sin, we have the choice now. We don't have to sin anymore. In any given moment, we can have the strength of God by the Spirit of God as our minds are set on the Word of God and in prayer and encouraging one another with these things. And we come to this morning to verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. And I, I've got three points for verses 8 and 9 that I'd like to give you this morning just to frame up what we're going to be talking about and to help compartmentalize a little bit. The first is, I want to show you one gospel truth. One gospel truth. Secondly, we're going to look at one great confidence that we all have. One great confidence. And thirdly, one glorious application. So a gospel truth, a great confidence, and a glorious application. Let's look at this together. Firstly, one gospel truth. Verse 8, here it is. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that Paul uses these conditionals. He uses them several times in this passage in chapter 6. If we died with Christ. He's careful to use conditional statements. Why? Because there are many who claim the name of Christ. The ones who are asking this question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, are called antinomians. Literally, lawless ones. Those who have put aside the law of God entirely because they love their sin and they want to continue in it. They don't want to be bound by any law of any kind. There are those who claim Christ, like these antinomians, who have never, in fact, been united with Christ in reality. And so he's careful. He uses conditions. If this is true of you, look at verse 2 again. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Look at verse 3, as many of us as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. Verse 5, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be. So you see the, the if-then kind of framework that he's using here. And in verse 6, same thing, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him. We believe, we, we have this conviction, this knowledge that is so important that God has for us. You see, as we spent some time last week looking at, there is a doctrinal a body of truth that the Lord wants us to understand first. This is what I've done for you, the Lord speaking. Now, live in the light of that truth. That's the model. That's the model in Scripture. Doctrine always comes first and then life, application. Living. Here's what we must believe. That we who died with Christ shall also live with him. 
Well, what does it mean that we shall live with him? This is this gospel truth that we must understand. Let's start first with what it doesn't mean. It's not a future reference to the bodily resurrection. When he says, for we, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Paul is not primarily in his mind looking forward to the resurrection at the last day and saying we shall one day be raised bodily from the grave. He's not saying that. Again, his focus is sanctification in this section. It's in fact the necessity of salvation as a whole. Salvation is justification, yes. Being declared right with God, yes. Sins forgiven, yes. Having the positive righteousness of Jesus imputed to our account, credited to us. That's salvation. But it doesn't stop there. It continues with Sanctification, which is another way of saying separation. Separation from what? From sin. From our sin more and more. Holiness. Holy living. This is a work of transformation. Those who are justified are certainly sanctified. Those who are sanctified will be glorified. Paul's going to get to that in Romans chapter 8 where he strings together what is called the golden chain of salvation. These things are a complete whole a cohesive whole in the mind of God because what God purposed in eternity past, what the Father planned in salvation, that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life even before the foundation of the world, the Son has executed, has brought to pass in space and time on the cross at Calvary. He purchased our redemption there. And then the Spirit now applies that salvation purchased at the cross, planned in eternity past, if you can even say that, to us here and now as we hear the gospel and we come to faith in Christ. We believe the message. That's the Spirit applying that word, that truth to our hearts. Hmm. So, when he says in verse 8, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, he is developing the idea of sanctification. He's developing the idea of walking in newness of life from verse 4. That's a present tense, that we should walk now in newness of life. Look at verse 6, that we should no longer serve sin or be slaves of sin. He actually uses the verb there, that we should no longer serve as slaves, sin. Now, present tense. Look at verse 11, likewise you also reckon yourself, conclude this, consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When? Now. Now. So the focus is sanctification now. He will deal with glorification in chapter 8, but here the focus is sanctification. So we know now that it, it doesn't mean future glorification. What does it mean that we shall live with him? Well, it's interesting that Paul does not use the word to dwell with. Here, when he says that we shall live with him. He's not saying that we shall dwell with him, as Christ used in John 14, where he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him, our abode, our dwelling with him. That's not the word he uses here. He uses a Greek word, sizao, that is a compound word. Greek words are often compound. Sizao is with and to live. Seen with, zao, to live. So to live with. And the idea is literally this, to live a new life in union with. 
to share a life in common with. You could say it is to share the life of. To share in the life of. That is what Paul is talking about. Not just a proximity to Christ, but to actually share in his life. To live his very life. In other words, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also share in the very life of Christ. Someone might say, well, why does Paul use the future tense word shall or will, which seems to indicate future? And I'll tell you, I think there's two reasons why he does this. Number one, Paul is stressing sequence here. He's stressing sequence in our union with Christ. What comes first? Death. What comes sequentially after death? Life. The seed first goes into the ground and dies, but then it springs forth and bears much fruit. Death must precede life. So because life comes after death sequentially, I think he uses this word, shall live. We shall live after we have died. But secondly, I think he's concerned to show that the life we share with Christ is not a one-time event that has happened and is complete, but actually is something continuous. A spectrum. Look at chapter 5, verse 10 of Romans. Chapter 5, verse 10. Paul says, For if when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. That speaks of our justification. We were reconciled. There was an exchange, you remember, is what the word reconciled means. The exchange is that our sin went on Christ, was placed on him. His righteousness was placed on us. So in that event of reconciliation, justification, he says, much more to a far greater extent, having been reconciled or justified, we shall be saved. Now, my translation says by his life, but the Greek says in his life. It's actually in his life. We shall be saved in his very life. In other words, <clears throat> everything relating to salvation, our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, all happens by the life of Christ working in us, toward us. Amazing truth. So this is a present reality that we shall live with him that continues to everlasting life. It's a present reality that continues to everlasting life. And I want to share some of what the scriptures have to say about this life of Christ so we can understand how we now are sharing in that life. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I just want to read the first four verses here of John's gospel. And let's listen for this idea of life here. John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That word with means literally face to face with. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him, this word of God, who we know is the Lord Jesus Christ incarnate, this word of God always was with God, face to face with God, and in him was life. All life was in him. 
He is the source, the author of all life. And the life was the light of men. There's a reference to conscience, to a knowledge of the truth that we all have, no matter who we are, what part of the world we're born and raised in, that God exists. And we know right from wrong. No one has to teach us that because this life and light is in each man. John chapter 5, verse 26 Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So this is a picture of the shared life of the Godhead. Father and Son. And Father and Son and Spirit. All share the life of God. Jesus has this life in himself because it's been granted him from the Father. The Gospel of John actually records seven, seven different I am statements in the Gospel where Jesus explicitly connects himself with the words that God gave to Moses at the burning bush when Moses said, Lord, when I come to the children of Israel and they ask me who has sent me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? And the Lord says, said, I am that I am. In other words, the eternally existing one, the eternally living one. The great I am is the one that sends you. That is my name. That's my identity. Jesus affirms that for himself seven times in the Gospel of John. So, all life is in Christ. All life. He is the source and he gives life to every created thing in the physical world in a temporal sense. All things were created by him, and all things were created for him, for his pleasure. But he is especially the source of all spiritual life and eternal life. Listen to John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, speaking to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The life. He uses the definite article. In other words, there is no life apart from Jesus Christ. And there's no way to God apart from Christ since he is the source of all spiritual life. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, John gives this testimony. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, Concerning the word of life. The life was manifested. It became apparent. It, it appeared. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Christ. The same word that he speaks about in, in John chapter 1. He amplifies here in 1 John chapter 1, and he says that word is the word of life. In fact, he is that eternal life which was with the Father face to face with God and has been manifested to us. Christ is the manifestation of the eternal life of God to men, to us. In salvation, what happens is God sovereignly joins us to the life of Christ. He puts us into the stream, if you will, of the eternal life of Christ. This is a staggering thought. Listen to, turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. 
this is important for us to understand the sovereignty of God in all things, and particularly in our salvation. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you, my text italicizes, he made alive, because he makes that clear in verse 5. But, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, that's a reference to Satan, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. There's a pretty grim picture of our position apart from Christ. In fact, our position in Adam. Here it is. We were um, dead in trespasses and sins. We were um, children of wrath by nature. This is how we're born. And the wrath of God abides on every one of us because we have that sinful nature from Adam and all we do is commit sin. But thank God for verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Now notice, even when we were dead in trespasses, did what? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Even when we were dead in trespasses, how much ability does a dead person have to respond to anything? Zero. A dead person cannot believe in Christ. And the scripture is saying when we were in that position, when we were dead, when we, our minds were darkened and blinded by this prince of the power of the air, and we couldn't understand spiritual truth when it was given us, in that condition, God made us alive together with Christ. He quickened us. He made us alive. That's why he says, by grace you've been saved. Not by your faith you have been saved. By grace. God saved you sovereignly. And then he gives you the gift of faith to believe. That's how he connects us with this sovereign salvation that he has done for us. So all who are saved, who have believed in Christ They've been sovereignly joined to the life of Christ. And all who have this life in Christ believe in him. This order, I'm, I'm being careful and, and deliberate about asserting this because this is gospel truth. And we, we must understand this because it, it gives glory to God. It takes away all glory from man, anything that we can do in our salvation. Listen to John 3.36. Familiar passage, but listen in this context. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Present tense, has. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He doesn't say he who believes the Son will have everlasting life one day, or that your believing somehow procures everlasting life. He says he who believes has everlasting life. You see, you were put into Christ's eternal life, and that's the reason you believe. Look at John 5, or listen to John 5, 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Brothers and sisters, how often do we think about everlasting life as a gift of God, which is right, it is, 
Right? The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But how often do we think of that gift really just in terms of the future? We trust in Christ and one day we will be saved in the future. But the fact is, you and I would not be able to believe, we wouldn't be brought into this salvation in our present day experience if it weren't for sharing in the life of Christ. If it weren't for sharing in the life of Christ. This is the life that Paul is writing about in Romans 6, 8. If you have died with Christ, you shall live with him as well. If we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So all who have been justified by faith have been transferred from being in Adam to in Christ. We've been placed into union with Christ. We've died with him. We've been buried with him. We've been raised with him. And we also share his life presently. That's really the point. Everlasting life is not just a future thing only, is what I'm saying. It has already begun for us here and now. The Lord Jesus, in praying to his Father in his high priestly prayer in John 17, said, this is eternal life. This is eternal life. That they should know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So he is defining this eternal life, which really we know is himself, as knowledge of himself. When he gives us that knowledge, we've entered into eternal life. And that knowledge will continue to grow more and more so that when we are with the Lord in that final state, that knowledge, I believe, will still continue to grow. We will learn more of the glories of Christ for all eternity and we will rejoice in it. Christ is our life. Paul said it to the Colossians this way, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So here's a parallel idea, but to the Colossian church. You've died, you've died to the reign and dominion of sin. And your life is now hidden with Christ. It's, the Greek word he uses is crypto. It's veiled, it's um, concealed in the very, it, with God. It's concealed with Christ, excuse me, in God. So there's our fellowship with God. How? Through Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a life that the world does not really understand. When they look at the life of a Christian, they know that we're different. But they, they don't understand the, what we understand about our life being hid in Christ. It's veiled to them. But it's also secure for us. Secure. We will never, ever lose this life. If we've been brought into it, we will be kept in this life. Hmm. So what does it mean that we shall live with him? What is this gospel truth, first of all? It means that we share his very life now. And that we will continue to everlasting life. He is the source of all life. And by grace we've been united to him, which is what enables us to believe in the Son. Continuously, continuously, and to know God in a saving relationship. Now, the question next is, why do we need the life of Christ now? Why is this critical for the Christian? Can a Christian go without the life of Christ in some measure? To answer that question, we have to think of this. What is God's great purpose in salvation? What is his great object and end for all of us in salvation? 
Is it not this, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. If you could sum up in one word what the purpose of salvation is with regard to us, it's this, holiness, holiness of life, that we would be holy and without blame before him in love. Peter said, here's the reason the gospel was preached. Here's the reason. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. This is referring to people who are spiritually dead. They don't have, um, they haven't come to faith in Christ yet. The reason the gospel was preached to them, those who are dead, is that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Or that they would be judged according to men in the flesh, meaning people of this world, the wicked, the ungodly, they're not going to understand our life, a spiritual life. They're going to judge us as fools. They're going to judge us as ridiculous and dismiss us. But that we should live according to God in the Spirit or live in the Spirit the way God does, as the ESV puts it. That's our purpose, that we would live in the Spirit the way God does, share the very life of God, which is what? Holiness. God is holy. He says, I am holy, for because I am holy, you shall be holy. In Romans chapter 5, verse 21 He said, so as sin reigned in death, in a state of death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin reigned in a state of spiritual death where our eyes and ears and hearts were closed to the truth of the gospel and to Jesus Christ. But now grace reigns how? Through righteousness. So righteousness is the purpose of the grace, the superabounding grace that we have active in our lives, that we would be righteous, that we would be holy. Is this possible without the life of Christ in us was my question. And the answer is a resounding no. It's not possible. Another question, does the antinomian need the life of Christ? Does the lawless person need the life of Christ? Well, there are many sadly today and even in the church, who live as though the life of Christ is not needed at all. They say, once we're saved, we're saved. We have freedom to live how we want. Let's just continue in sin that grace may abound. Brothers and sisters, the people who say that and who feel that way are not Christians. They're not in union with Christ. They're nominal Christians in name only. They're happy with taking justification They've been made right with God through the work of Christ. Praise the Lord. They're happy to take glorification. One day everything's going to be put right. They're going to have a glorified body and live forever with the Lord in heaven. But the piece that's missing is sanctification. That they willingly dismiss. For them, they don't need to live with Christ at all. They want his blessings. They'll take the forgiveness. They'll take the spiritual healing. They'll take the reconciliation with God, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. But they don't want a new life. 
because they love the old one too much. Christ for them is an addition to what they have in their lives. He's additive. He doesn't replace and transform everything for them. You see, they're fine living on their own, these antinomians and people who think this way. They're fine living in their own life, believing that their sins are forgiven. But brothers and sisters, that is not Christianity. Christianity requires the life of Christ in us to transform us to become like Christ. It's not a work that we can do on our own. He must change our hearts, our desires, so that we desire godliness. By ourselves, we don't desire anything but sin. So we are not left on our own for this new life. We have to have, we must have the life of Christ, which is to say we must live in the Spirit. The Spirit of God must be in our hearts. Listen to how Paul describes God's purpose and salvation in terms of marriage, in terms of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So here's a picture of marriage. Christ loves the church just like a husband loves his wife. And what does he do? He lays down his life for her. That's a picture of justification. He's freed her from the penalty of her sins, right? By dying for her in her place, for her benefit. But he doesn't stop there. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So now we're dealing with sanctification. She was justified, sins paid for, that she might be washed. She needs to be cleansed. So he dies not just for her sins, but get this, for her sinfulness. He dies for her sinful nature to change her and give her his nature. He frees her from the power of her sin nature and now he cleanses her progressively. How? Through the word. Through the washing of water by the word. And as we learn from John 1 and 1 John 1, that word is Jesus Christ incarnate in the flesh. So he himself has a cleansing effect on us. His word that we have revealed to us here in the written pages of Scripture, this is the cleansing that we all need as the bride of Christ. Sanctify them by your truth, Jesus said. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. And remember, who is the word? Jesus Christ. We need Christ in us to sanctify us more and more. But he doesn't stop there. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now he's talking about final glorification. Final glorification. He's going to set her free from the presence of sin. So freed from the penalty of sin and her justification, freed from the power of sin in her sanctification, freed from the presence of sin ultimately in her glorification. So this is all the life of Christ in us. This is why the life of Christ is required in us. It's vital that we be holy in order that we be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, back to Romans 6 verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And now notice the connection with verse 9. And the reason we can live with Christ and share his life now is this. Here's the second point in the sermon. 
one great confidence. Here's our great confidence. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. So the reason Paul says that we believe that we shall live with him both now and forever, that we will live, is answered here in this verse. Why? It's because Christ has been raised from the dead and dies no more. Now let's unpack this a little bit. He says, first of all, knowing this, knowing that Christ, in other words, get your eyes off of yourself for a moment. Look at Jesus. If you want to grow in your spiritual life, if you want to be sanctified, you must look to Christ and stop looking at yourself. When people get in trouble and they, they say, I've sinned and I don't think I've ever been a Christian before in my life. It's because they're looking too much at themselves and they're not looking enough at Christ. It's good to be introspective and to ask, Lord, search my mind, search my heart, see if there be any wicked way or hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a good prayer. That's introspective. But where we get unbalanced, where we get caught up is when we stay there. Look to Christ. He is your salvation. He is your deliverance moment by moment, day by day. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. What does that mean? Well, the ESV says, will never die again. That's right. NASB, New American Standard, says, is never to die again. Excellent as well. That's the idea. Jesus has been raised from the dead and he will never die again. Just stop and think about that truth for just a moment. Because it's vital for our understanding of how we live. When Jesus raised the dead, as he did several times, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised the, uh, the son of the widow of Nain, right? He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He raised many people from the dead. Those people died again one day, didn't they? So you could think of their raising as really more of a resuscitation than a resurrection in the sense that Christ had. When Christ was raised from the dead, he rose to life eternal, never to die again. And we learned in verse 4 of chapter 6 that Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, that it was by the power of God that he was raised from the dead. In fact, in other places in Scripture, the triune God is involved in the raising of Christ. Jesus in John 10 says, I lay down my life willingly that I might take it up again myself. No man takes it from me. And then in Romans 1, it's the Spirit of God that has raised Christ from the dead, the Holy Spirit of God. So all of God is involved in the raising of Jesus from the dead. So here we have this ever-living one who eternally existed, who has all life in him, who for a time died. It's an amazing thought. This is the condescension of Christ that Pastor Stan mentioned in Philippians chapter 2 earlier. This everlasting, ever-living word of God who took on flesh, he left his glory in heaven voluntarily, and he emptied himself in this sense. He poured his divinity into a body. He didn't lose his divinity at all. He poured it into a body. He took the form of a servant, a slave, he was made of no reputation. He humbled himself greatly. 
He came to earth in the appearance, the likeness of men. And he humbled himself, the scripture says, even to the point of death, the death on the cross. The everlasting God, the Son, died for a time. He became subject to the domain of death for a time. Death had domain over him for a time. It held him for a time. Why? He wasn't born in Adam like we are. See, death is God's judicial punishment, consequence for sin. Christ was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, sinless. Born sinless, lived sinless. He had no sin of his own to pay for. So why should he die? This is the gospel message, brothers and sisters. Because he willingly took our sins upon himself and bore the full penalty that God's righteous law demands for sin, which is death. So he willingly subjected himself to death and to the dominion of death for a time. Not for crimes that he had done, but for our crimes. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Praise God. And if he were not sinless, he would have stayed dead. Death would have had final dominion over him. But because he was the sinless son of God who effectively died in our place, and God the Father accepted that sacrifice fully, he raised him from the, from the dead to vindicate him, to show that he was in fact righteous and the son of God that he had claimed to be. He didn't stay dead. He came back to life. And now he's not only been raised from the dead, but he has been highly exalted to the right hand of the Father, where he is seated, ruling and reigning in what's called his session in heaven. Now, he's been given the name that is above every name. That is the name Lord. And every knee in heaven and on earth will bow to that name, the Lord Jesus Christ, and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has been highly exalted. The ever-living one humbled himself and subjected himself to death for a time, but now he lives and he lives forever. Listen to Christ's own words speaking as the exalted Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. In other words, he has the authority over death now. Death no longer has dominion over him. You could say this, Jesus, after completing his rescue mission, has finished with death forever. He's done with the domain of sin and death forever. Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Brothers and sisters, this is then the basis of our confidence that we shall live with him both now and forever. This is the basis of our confidence that we will never die ourselves. What is that? That Christ will never die again. He lives forever. In other words, the reason that we live sharing in the life of Christ now and forever is because he lives for us. His life is what is sustaining us. His everlasting life sustains us. And just as he sustains all things in the material world, 
Scripture says all things by him consist. He literally is holding together all of the molecules and atoms. All the positive and negative charges are all held together by him in the material world. So it is in the spiritual world. We are sustained. Our life is sustained, held together forever by him. We're told in Scripture that Christ in his everlasting life intercedes for his people. Romans 8.34, Paul asks this question, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. He prays for us. He sustains us from heaven in his intercessory work by praying for us. And because he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, in fact, he's described as a priest forever in Hebrews. A priest forever. A priest without end. A priest without end can constantly pray for his people and intercede for them. He is not like other priests who had a limited service and then they died. This priesthood endures forever because he has the power of an indestructible life, not able to be destroyed. So he intercedes for us, but he also indwells us, as we know. He indwells us. And it is his life in us. He is the vine, we are the branches, we are abiding in him now, by grace. So our life, brothers and sisters, is totally bound up in his everlasting life. That's, I hope, the message that you're getting this morning. Our life is bound up in his. And the reason that we will live forever, here's our confidence, is that he lives forever. He will never die, therefore we will never die. He sustains us. If death had continued to hold him, there would be no hope. There would be no salvation. Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 15 in that whole discussion of resurrection. He says, if Christ has not risen, your faith is futile, it's empty, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And we, above all people, would be most to be pitied. There'd be hope, no, no hope. But as we read this morning in Psalm 121, wonderful psalm in this connection. This is a psalm of ascent. Um, psalm 120 through 134 are all called psalms of ascent because Israel would sing these psalms as they were ascending to Jerusalem three times in the year when they would come to worship the Lord at the required feasts. And Psalm 121 the psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. Imagine walking up toward Jerusalem, ascending, and you say, where does my help come from? I will lift up my eyes to the hills. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. That is in the ultimate sense. He will not allow your foot to be moved. You are, excuse me, stable in him. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. So not only does Christ live forever for us, but he never rests, sleeps, so that he's not available to hear us. The throne of grace has been opened, brothers and sisters. He is available any time of day for us to come and ask for help in time of need. 
He does not sleep. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. Now notice, he doesn't say the Lord will preserve you from every trial. He will not protect you from every kind of sickness that could come your way. He will not protect you from financial disaster necessarily. What he does say is he will preserve you from all evil. You see, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Everything works for us in the good, which means this, that we are being transformed to be like Christ, our sanctification. That's the good. So whatever that takes, trials, tribulation, hardship, that crucible and that fire that he applies to us, he does as a loving father, refining us and making us more like his son, drawing away the sinfulness in our life. He will preserve your soul. That's how he protects us. Our souls are safe in him. No one can touch them. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. There it is. Our life now and forever is bound up in his life, protecting us, living for us, interceding for us, praying for us, never sleeping, always vigilant, watchful, awake, and helpful. Back to Romans 6 and verse 9. You may be asking yourself in verse 9 there, why is Paul calling so much attention to um, dying with Christ, living with Christ, that Christ no, dies no more, will never die again, that death doesn't have dominion over him any longer? What's the application, Paul? Why does this doctrine matter? Why do we need to know these things and believe and have, have conviction of these truths as we get our eyes off of ourselves and look to Jesus and the truth about him? Here it is. What's the pattern that he's been following all along in this chapter? What happens to Christ happens to us, right? We died with Christ, buried with him, raised with him. If we're united to Christ and Christ dies no more, what's the implication? We die no more. We die no more. If death no longer has dominion over Jesus, death no longer has dominion over us. That's what he's saying. In other words, Christ is done with the realm of sin and death forever, and therefore so are you and so am I. Does that amaze you? It should. So here's the third point, and here's here is the glorious application of this truth. We've already established that sin no longer reigns over us because we died to sin in verse 2. But do you realize that death no longer has dominion over us either? You could say, well, what do you mean by that? I'm saying Christians don't die. Really? Did you just say that? Christians don't die. Listen to how the Lord himself describes our life to Martha in John chapter 11 at the grave of Lazarus. He says this in John eleven twenty five and 26. Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Shall, do you believe this? You shall never die. What does he mean by that? 
Or take this, Jesus answering the Sadducees in this question about marriage and the resurrection. Remember the seven brothers who had the same wife? They all took her, didn't have any children, and the question was, well, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Jesus says in Luke 20, 37, but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob, but I am. After they had died in the body. How does he say that? Well, the Lord here is saying, this passage shows that the dead are raised. Have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob been raised from the dead bodily? Not yet. But they have been raised spiritually. And those who have been raised spiritually, God says of them that he is the God of the living because they are alive. They've not died. So what do we know? We know that those who believe in Christ have been made alive together with him, spiritually alive. And so what happens when a spiritually alive person dies in the body? He lives. He lives. He lives immediately. In fact, we've talked about this a while ago, but 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When we close our eyes in death in this world, it is a door to life that opens immediately. There will not a moment pass that you will not be aware of the presence of the Lord. In other words, those who have been brought into union with Christ and made alive in him, that is a permanent immersion into Christ. That fellowship with God will never be broken. Not even physical death will break that fellowship. You will be conscious of being in the presence of God immediately when you close your eyes in this world. So nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, not even death. That's why he's saying, death has no longer dominion over Christ. Because he wants us to understand it doesn't have dominion over us either. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. That's what we're talking about, a spiritual resurrection that we all have been brought into now by believing, because we believe. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 6. The second death has no power over us because we have been united to Christ. We are in his life. Just a couple of verses to um, help us think about how the Lord views his saints now when they do die. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 11.30. This is in the context of um, communion, the Lord's Supper that we do every week here at Creekside. And the warning that we should not partake of the Lord's body in an unworthy manner. And he says this, For this reason many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Sleep. He doesn't say they died. This is a euphemism for the, the death of the body. But he's saying they sleep. Saints of God, when they close their eyes in this world, sleep. That's because the body may disintegrate into the ground or something else may happen to it. One day that body is going to be reunited in perfection with that spirit that never dies. So, we are said that we sleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for when the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We sleep. 1 Thessalonians 4.14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? We don't die. We will never die, brothers and sisters. Your spirit lives on. Your body will be reunited one day when it's glorified. And then you will live in the body forever and ever as Christ does now. Fellowship will never again be broken because we have been brought into the life of Christ. His life in us and we in him. So we have one gospel truth. If we've died with him, in fact, if that's true of us, we shall live with him. That will be evidenced now through a new life, a transformed life, a life of holiness. Not a life of perfection, but a life where we yearn, we long for holiness, and he actually is accomplishing holiness in us progressively as we are dealing with our sins and rooting them out by the power of the Spirit. One gospel truth, and our great confidence in that truth is not ourselves, it's not our faith that we trusted in Christ, it's knowing this, knowing this, that Christ having been raised from the dead dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Keep your eyes on Christ. That's what gives us confidence that we will never die. And thirdly, the glorious application is, if death doesn't hold him, and it doesn't, it doesn't hold us anymore either. We've passed from death to life. Praise the Lord. Let's give him the praise and the honor and the glory this week as we seek to live for him. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your great salvation as you are opening up to us more and more the glories of what you have done, what you've purposed in the past, what you have brought to pass through the work of your dear Son in his perfections, his glories that he revealed. Father, thank you that you have accomplished our complete redemption. And now, through the Spirit of God, you are applying this work to our hearts and changing us to be more like your Son. Lord, may we seek to live for your glory. May we seek holiness because we love you, because we want to honor you as children want to honor a father whom they love. Lord, we don't want to sin against you. We don't want to sin against love. Help us. Help us to walk in this newness of life with our eyes set on heavenly things not on temporal earthly things, but where Christ is, above. From where does our help come? It comes from you, from the hills. We must look up. Lord, help us. You know our weakness, but Father, you in your grace, your infinite grace is more abounding than all our sin. Thank you that you are making us uh, different, Lord. We're not the people we used to be. The old man is dead. And even this body of sin that we still carry around, it doesn't have the tyranny that it used to in our lives anymore. We can say no to sin by the power of the Spirit. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the true freedom that we have in Christ, a freedom to serve you, a freedom to love you, a freedom to love each other as an expression of loving you. May we do that. May, may the light of the gospel be seen in this church here and in every gospel-preaching church in this valley. May the world... All your children from every part of the world 
be awakened to the truth and come to faith in Christ and be spared and saved from the wrath to come. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.